My name is Mikhail Sabulov, and this is The Russian Resistance, a podcast aiming to provide insight into the social and political state of Russia for internationals. Today I have a truly special guest, an independent political scientist and publicist, Ekaterina Shulman. Ekaterina has become a voice of reason for the Russian opposition. For many years, she's been running her YouTube channel, calmly explaining the inevitable political processes, laws, and underlying logic that guides the Russian government. Her political science expertise filled the void for the Russian audiences, skyrocketing her popularity. A rare occasion for a working scientist who uses complex terminology and language. Ekaterina has her own fan base who dedicate drawings and fan fiction to her, claiming her the next president of Russia. She, as almost every rational Russian public figure, was certain that war wasn't going to happen and made a mistake. The first thing to alert me of the war was a Facebook post from an old friend on Life Journal. So I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed and Facebook hadn't been banned in Russia yet and see his post consisting of the only words bastards. There is a term violent entrepreneurship and the events of early February could be called violent diplomacy. The most so because of similar things happening in Russia before in spring 2021. Back then, we had military exercises and large numbers of troops along the border. We also had a lot of aggressive talk about Ukraine in the official media, along with the articles written by Russia's top figures. Ria Novosti, a Russian state-owned news agency, issued a publication on how to properly denazify Ukraine. This all looked very threatening indeed. However, it ended with Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council of Russia, writing an article on how we actually want to develop diplomatic communication channels with the US. This was followed by a meeting of the US and Russian presidents in Geneva, with tensions dissipating for a while. Since what was happening in late 2021, early 2022 looked much the same, it was logical to assume that a second round of begging for US-Russia renegotiations was at stake. Yet when the president announced the acknowledgement of the DNR and LNR's sovereignty, it became evident this wasn't going to end in talk. With mentioning administrative boundaries of the DNR and LNR came the realization of the inevitability of the armed conflict. We can see what the authorities are afraid of in what they're pressing hard against most vigorously, participation in and influence on electoral events, namely candidacy, observation, canvassing. That is, they are scared that the formal instrument of election by acclamation will get broken and turned against the authorities. The smart voting project was in fact feared because it was a tool that allowed to collect the spilt moisture of popular discontent and gather it into a single hose, the jet from which would knock anyone down. Smart voting, introduced by the opposition leader Alexei Navalny, is a tactical voting strategy that aims at reducing the number of pro-government politicians in the government body. Unsurprisingly, the Russian authorities do everything in their power to oppose that strategy and have included smart voting website into restricted platforms list. Mass gatherings are another fear 
Again, participation, organization, appeals to something. They're afraid of civil unrest, which they wouldn't know what to do with, since it'll be clear that the present-day AMON, Special Purpose Mobile Unit, and Rosgvardia National Guard of Russia won't help. And they're afraid of any kind of organization, self-organization. Any structure being formed, they destroy it, be it NGO, university or other. From the political point of view, this is a correct decision. No matter how many people you have, if you're scattered around, aren't organized, you don't exist. It's been said that a million people will take to the streets prompted by the pounding of their hearts. Whereas, in fact, mass gatherings are arranged, generally by parties and trade unions. Abnormally, they will be organized by underground cells or influencers who dare to speak publicly. The subject of concern is, therefore, public influence. Hence the repression of blockers who have the opportunity to speak in public and be heard. On the 21st of March this year, the Russian government proclaimed Meta and Facebook and Instagram and owns an extremist organization and banned all its activity in the Russian Federation. The official stance, Meta changed their hate speech policy and allowed calls for violence against the Russian military. That is true, but only partially. Meta did allow such behavior, but only for a few countries and specifically pertaining to the invasion. Calling for the death of the Russian and Belarusian presidents was also allowed, albeit only in Ukraine, Russia and Poland. I personally think the decision to ban Facebook and Instagram is quite controversial. Even though I completely understand the hatred, I disagree with Meta's decision to change the hate speech policy, even temporary, because it leads to even further radicalization of the masses and dehumanization of the other, which is a textbook propaganda tool. In the absence of public political activity, the authorities can use the same social media platforms. They spare neither effort nor expense for the propaganda machine. Their speakers getting rich from brainwashing people's minds on every channel from TV to Telegram. Note how they're making sure this public space won't go through a change. Only proven, long-established people are allowed in there. Vice Speaker Pyotr Tolstoy, Margarita Simonyan, Vladimir Solovyov, Dmitry Kiselyov, all the same familiar faces speaking up for the patriots. No new people, since no one knows how they will behave. In the beginning of the war, Friday became the most dreaded day for the Russian opposition. For many weeks, on Fridays, the Russian government would announce new names marked as foreign agents. Many of those who denounced the war publicly eventually made it to the list. Ekaterina did as well. She was marked for allegedly receiving Western funding, as well as funding from Russian Oxford Fund, which was listed as an unwanted organization itself, and Carnegie Fund. Today, Carnegie Center is closed, and access to scientific databases is restricted by sanctions. So many Russian scientists look to relocate from their home country to be able to continue their academic careers. Recently, I was wondering how the foreign agency affected her, and what the future of Russian science is. I, for instance, won't be able to teach starting the 1st of December. Now a foreign agent, I'm forbidden to work in state and municipal higher education institutions, and I can't deal with minors in any way. As for pursuing science, I should say there is no such thing as national sciences. Science is international by definition, which has been true since the days when Humboldt and Leibniz, 17th century German philosophers, corresponded with their colleagues in Latin. The truth is that in Russia, we had rather vast opportunities for academic exchange. We used to go abroad to visit each other's conferences. We were published in journals. I say we realized to what extent we had been part of the global space only when we lost it. Akhmatova, a Russian poet of the Silver Age, wrote, we started composing poems about God's great generosity 
generosity and our former riches. It turned out the former riches were indeed great. The current danger is not so much in restricting access, but rather lies in pushing pseudoscience and loyalism under the guise of science. The first option is hostility and closeness from the outside, the second option is loyalism instead of science, and the third option is emigration. The longer I stay in Berlin, the more I'm struck by the scale of what's happening. See, the evidence gathered from my contacts is astounding. Almost everyone I could reach out to has just left, either them or their children or them both. This is terrifying, as the country will be with people who remain within it. When we go, we drop out of Russian society. Of course, we can think it like, yes, in emigration, I'm more useful than if I were in prison. That's what everyone tells themselves. But nevertheless, it is more of a temporary stay in limbo. Not a prison, yet not living the same life your country does. And the longer the situation continues, the deeper the gap and the harder it will be to return. Because even if a person wants to do it, and suppose the political environment changes, there will be new circumstances. People get used to new life, kids go into school. Getting yourself ready to move back will be a real challenge, more difficult every month, even more so every year. The political regime, in turn, only benefits from this. No need to challenge the repressive apparatus or make it look more fearsome than it really is. Were the authorities to actually unleash mass repressions, they'd come to realize it's as easy as taking Kiev. And they plan to gain control of the city in three days, which has since become a metaphor, inspiring fear, threatening gestures, yet no resource for accomplishments. And while it sounds immoral, it would be better for the country if we all stayed and helped by stuffing ourselves into this grinder. Thus, it would spin more slowly and get jammed quicker. Few are willing to take on that role, though. Big kudos to those who did and decided to stay. Even if they say nothing, do nothing, don't protest, they are still present. Russia has experienced multiple waves of emigration throughout its history. The first, and arguably one of the largest, was caused by the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, when more than a million of White Guard, meaning Tsars, supporters, left Russia for Europe. World War II was the reason for the second wave. The third wave lasted from the 70s to 90s, when Moscow allowed Soviet Jews, Germans, and Ponting Greeks to leave under the Family Reunion Clause. Contrary to the first and second wave emigrants, now people were allowed to leave legally, not being claimed enemies of the state in the USSR. They could even maintain contact with their relatives who stayed in the Soviets. Yet the unspoken principle remained intact. Once a person voluntarily left the USSR, they were not allowed in not even for their mother's funeral. We are arguably facing a new wave of Russian immigration today. Many are afraid that the Russian government would eventually close the borders, so they decide to act fast. However, Ekaterina believes that unless the regime changes, the borders would remain open. The authoritative political model that Russia has today, the term that Ekaterina uses is petrocracy, meaning oil state, benefits from letting people with opposing views relocate, especially if they're vocal about it. People are instead encouraged to leave the country. Moreover, they are forced to do so in every way. And the easiest is to pursue criminal prosecution with deliberate pauses in between. For instance, Yashin reports that his interrogator at Petrovka tells him face to face, well, Ilya, come on, we've already warned you all kinds of ways, didn't even know how to get through, and you're still here causing us trouble. A cultured person is easy to frighten. It may be hard to make them do something immoral, 
but not imagine a horrible threat. Ilya Yashin is an oppositional leader, activist and politician who has been previously marked as a foreign agent. He was imprisoned in July for discrediting the Russian military and faces up to 10 years in prison. What can be done when you are outside of Russia? On the one hand, there is more discretion and freedom of speech here, though it's not absolute because few live forever. People still have relatives and some interests in Russia, and being charged in an absentia is nasty enough to try to avoid it. So, not so much of liberty as it may seem. Nonetheless, we've caught an opportunity to speak out and pass along information to Russia. Building communities is simpler here, as local authorities don't persecute for it, but on the contrary, help occasionally. One of the options would be establishing mutual aid networks. That being said, Russians are notoriously famous for not forming diasporas. Shine away from each other, with joint activities usually ending in a scandal. Uh, we shall see what happens now, because as I said, immigration rates are high. Russian cultural and political centers are emerging in Vilnius, Tbilisi, Yerevan, Berlin and Riga. Volunteer activities are booming, refugees and newcomers are being assisted. This podcast is produced by Paper Paper, an independent media company from St. Petersburg that has been reporting on the war in Ukraine. Due to government repressions, our team was forced to leave home and settle in different countries. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss the future episodes and consider donating to support our work. The link is in the description. Internet culture has a philosophical aphorism called Goldman's Law. It states that as an online discussion grows longer, regardless of topic or scope, the probability of a comparison to Nazis or Hitler approaches one. Since the start of the war, many discussions linked Putin to Hitler one way or the other. Even Mike Goldman rejected his own adage and tweeted, this guy, meaning Putin, reminds me of somebody. Yekaterina considers such comparisons a dangerous instrument when it comes to official government rhetoric. I'd been a fierce opponent of historical parallels before this disaster occurred. It seemed a wrong way of thinking, a dead end. While paradoxically reassuring, this is something humanity has already lived through, and our brains tend to mistake the familiar for the safe. Since Europeans perceive Hitler as absolute evil, comparing someone with him is multiplication by zero. And what really bothers me is that both sides of the conflict use this comparison so naturally, routinely. Why is it a bad thing? Because despite all the existential horror of the current events, the Ukraine war is technically just two neighbors fighting over territory, one of the most banal and most frequent types of armed conflict. It wasn't before the 20th century that it became replaced by ideological wars for spheres of influence and influence over people's minds. And then it was superseded by peaceful coexistence and trade relations. We used to think that this is what humanity's future looks like. I'm still thinking that. And seeing humankind change in direction is horrible, particularly knowing that some will fall back into what the rest did in the 18th 
19th centuries. Such conflicts are destined to end in messy, sloppy negotiations that hardly satisfy any side, bargaining, territorial division and reconciliation. It is said that this merely buys time until the next conflict happens. The war, however, becomes a disaster for both sides when they are functionally within the space of archaic-type warfare, but mentally in the 21st century. No such terror can be justified except when it's a holy war, an example being the war with Hitler. As a result, both sides of the current conflict end up fighting Hitler. In this case, in the mindscape of belligerents, there can be no truce or negotiation, only complete surrender, because negotiating with absolute evil is not an option, not to mention that it prolongs the conflict. Here, the time factor gains particular importance, since it takes time to barbarize people. And the less time one spends in this dreadful school of barbarism, the better. A common practice now is to blame the followers of conciliatory politics who try to lure Russia into international trade and encourage economic relations with the country. They try to turn Russia into a partner, not an adversary, but are instead accused of corrupting the opponent who has come to kill them. At the same time, I can't stop thinking that they bought us a year of peaceful life, and then they did it again and again. All these years, children went to schools and students to universities. We had our cities beautified and we could go see a play to theatre. It didn't save anyone from anything, but kept the web of life spinning. I wish the war was running out of time. For me, the logic of the war to the bitter end is further destruction. I grieve for civilization. I'm horrified to see the consumption rates for strong spirits rising. One of the chief accomplishments of the last 15 years is a threat, and this is the best thing that ever happened to us, to everyone. Not just intelligentsia or Muscovites. People started drinking less vodka, replacing it with beer. This was a remarkable civilizational breakthrough. You've just heard Vladimir Putin say, we as martyrs will go straight to heaven and they will simply die, followed by laughter in the audience. Putin said that back in 2018 at an annual international forum, Valdai, when asked about the escalating probability of a nuclear war. Right away, that phrase became an internet meme. Four years later, it seems anything but funny. Ekaterina, however, believes that the risks of Russia-Ukraine war escalating to a nuclear war are low. What are our predictions worth now? Okay, we started with me saying I hadn't believed in the possibility of a war. And I hadn't, not because it seemed too horrible to be true. But there is a discernible pattern to our political system, which I knew through my observations. Never-ending bullshit, imitation and compliance with any orders from superiors are typical of it. Conformism and adaptability to the point no moral barriers exist, too. Yet brute force and wildly expensive, costly aggression are not typical. Judging based on what followed, it looks like we were not so wrong. Yes, we didn't expect that our government would sprint at a concrete wall head first. We thought it'd be more like running around, shouting somebody stop me, which it had been doing for years. 
And still, after this moment of total insanity, we see it resumed its ordinary behavior, same as before. Turns out our government's metaphorical hat is not so strong after all. A magic helmet conjured in their mind was in fact a brightly colored cap made of cardboard. And what seemed an open hallway was actually a painting drawn on the concrete wall. The reality turned out to be what we know it to be. I'm sure that the probability of nuclear escalation is low. The system is targeted at blackmailing not killing. After the 24th of February, there is no way to guarantee this will be the case, though. The war would eventually be over, and some tens of thousands of Russian soldiers that survived would return to Russia, most likely suffering from PTSD and other sorts of trauma. Could they make a significant socio-political force that can affect the regime? Ekaterina thinks that their influence will be minor, and only if they return to the same town or city in large numbers. It is cynical, but ordinary victims will be absorbed, consumed and digested by the social fabric. A large society, a large country, it is in a way a self-purifying ocean that will process everyone who gets in there. And these people, whatever shape they will be in when they return, will just live out their days. I'd suggest we take a look at another issue instead. Law enforcement officers, or broadly speaking, the security apparatus, law, mid and high rank military officials, are acquiring experience in large-scale violence. These people, often uninjured, with no damaged or missing body parts, make it through these filtration camps. And nobody knows which will destroy one as a person more, being detained in that camp or being a commander of it. After the two Chechen wars, there came a Chechenization of Russian political mores, which is transferring that experience to the whole of Russia. Russia has gone through two wars against Chechen separatists, 1994-1996 through 1996, and 1999-2000. through 2000s. Both times, the officials shied away from the term war, referring to call the conflict campaign or counter-terrorist operation. People, when they make it from the war, get promoted, announced heroes, presented with awards. They have a feeling they've done incredibly well. In Syria, a new generation of military leaders must have emerged. Now they're fighting in Ukraine. Again, the next generation of Siloviki will come up in Ukraine. This isn't exactly a large number, taking into account Russia's size. Yet if you add the declining living standards and the savagery that comes after poverty, because poverty isn't going anywhere, just some minor improvements took the form of gentrifications in Russia. Hence, people, even with little money, had the opportunity to go to a clean, nicely renovated park in their city or a playground covered with rubber rugs. This is what basically distinguishes the first world from the second world countries. If it's the second world, you can have a lot of money, but you need a high fence built around your property to enjoy your money while remaining inside. In the case of the first world, you can live on benefits in some shabby flat, but once you're out, you'll find yourself in a comfortable, safe environment. You'll be fed, entertained, nourished and educated. That certainly never fully happened in Russia. Still, our cities, not just capital ones, have started to look different. If this gradually becomes a thing of the past, in addition, future executives, those who will be in charge, and let's put it this way, will set the standards, will return feral. They weren't humanized in the old days either, but now it will be an entirely new level of barbarization. 
That's why I'm saying that it has to stop, and the sooner, the better. Of course, I realize that the outside world can oppose it and decide to exhaust Russia till it poses no danger to anyone. They don't care for our nurtured Russian culture. I do. In the beginning of the war, Ekaterina urged Russians to write to local politicians to at least make their opinion known. Can that even work in a political system with mostly fraudulent elections? Is there a way to influence this war if you're still in Russia, or even if you're abroad? Ekaterina advises Russians to at least participate in social research. She calls it quasi-elections. Russian politicians pay a lot of attention to social opinion polls and specifically approval ratings. So for common people, it's pretty much the only safe way to show their discontent. A protest of the week, its tools are known. Evasion, avoidance, hypocrisy, imitation and sabotage. Do what you can, but don't show enthusiasm at least. That is not rewarded still. If there is something you must do, but your heart is not in it, do the bare minimum. As for writing to MPs, it's okay to participate in polls if they aren't political or considered such. And since we have that national unity, if you don't feel disgusted about using this argument, you can say that one shouldn't turn your courtyard into a waste dump. I understand that political denunciation and counter-denunciation are not the things that many favor. However, if there is an important cause, give it a try. You might as well find it enjoyable, like playing the instrument described in de Kuster's novel about Till Eulenspiegel, where needles pierce cat's tails. Such an instrument was made for Charles II. Ekaterina refers to a so-called cat piano, or cat harpsichord, where cats were used instead of strings. The keyboard would be placed in such a way that if you press the key, it would squeeze the cat's tail, making it scream in pain. There is no proof that such an instrument ever existed. Letters to deputies have proved a good tool, saying that so far none got hurt because of it. People have received answers too. If nothing else, at least we forced the MPs to respond. This isn't public dissemination of fake news either, with no known case of anyone being somehow punished for this. That is something, so got to keep it going. It's important to remind people's chosen ones that the nation isn't that united and different opinions exist. Also, try to maintain contacts, notwithstanding breaking social ties due to departures and ideological differences. You can put relations on pause, but don't sever them. The times ahead aren't much fun. You may find yourself in need of some basic help. Just like it was back in Soviet times, when making olive salad, someone would bring peas and someone would have mayonnaise or a dozen eggs. This kind of mutual aid, joint effort, is likely to be needed. If a person can do their thing while staying in Russia, then every day of doing it shall be credited to their owner. There has always been a great need for people in Russia, always a lack of them, always more matters at hand than people. Now it is tenfold greater. If you aren't facing a direct physical threat, try to stay in the country. I know how it sounds. I have left, now given advice being in a safe place myself. I don't advise anything to anyone, though. I'm not even sure that I've done anything right myself. And I understand that no immediate threat now doesn't mean there won't be one in 15 minutes. 
But with that said, I can't honestly advise everyone to urgently evacuate because it would ruin Russia. I can't think of my country as hopeless. I do hope it's not. And if it's not, there must be someone who cares. It'd be best they stay inside, not outside the country, where all they can do is wave goodbye and wish well. Thank you for listening to The Russian Resistance. Please subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platforms, share our episodes with friends, and give us a rating. It really helps us keep going.